I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Judges this morning, Judges chapter 19, and I'll take you there in just a minute. If you didn't get the heads up warning on this passage, I'll, I'll give that to you in a second. Um, just a reminder that we're participating with um, book, uh, Bread and Books this morning, and so there'll be a table in the atrium with books available for you to pick up to help us to participate with that, reading books to third graders downtown Lansing, and great books, great books with great strong moral quality to them, and the volunteers get to talk with the kids about that, so consider participating with that. Um, if you're a person who's watching online through the broadcast right now and you have children with you, you may want to consider taking a pass on what we're about to cover. And if you're in here in the auditorium with someone that um, perhaps you don't want them to hear really graphic sexual details, you may want to take a pass also. It's not often a pastor tells you to leave church, is it? Um, There's just no way of getting around it. This this is totally R-rated material. And it's very explicit. It's one of the three hardest passages in Scripture. And by that I rank it this way, um, the crucifixion of Jesus at the very top. It's just incredibly brutal. But then comes Genesis chapter 19 and Judges chapter 19. Genesis 19 is all about Sodom. It's a very, very hard passage. And there's Judges 19 right alongside it. And we always want to look for Jesus in these stories, and it's so hard when you come to a passage like this to see Jesus, especially when it's so R-rated. But this is what we know for sure. Scripture says this, 2 Timothy 3, look with me on the screen. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So all means all, right? Okay, so we have something to pray about. Let's pray together. Lord God, you say yourself that everything that's recorded in the Bible is profitable. And we would freely admit this is one of those that looks really hard to find something that's helpful. But we know that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you can teach us, you will guide us, and you will instruct us in righteousness. So we pray that we would approach this with an open mind, one in which is fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. And we pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. If you're new to understanding Jesus, or you're new to the Bible, or things are just not clear to you about who Jesus is, maybe you're new to church, and you want a clear picture of Him, you're probably not going to the book of Judges for that. And specifically, you're not going to Judges 19. Matter of fact, Judges 19 through 21, because it's pretty hard to see it there, unless you really want an image of the depravity of mankind. It's especially hard after the beauty of what we saw last week in the story of Ruth. It's an incredibly beautiful story. And so following the book of Ruth, you're hardly prepared for the shock of going back into the end of Judges 19. Why do that that way? Well, I told you last week that Ruth, the time frame that the Ruth story happens in parallels the book of Judges. That 300, 350 year span of time, Ruth tucks into that time frame. So we come back now to the book of Judges to finish the book of Judges, and we're finishing it this week and next week, so this is kind of a a two-parter. You recall what happened in the story of Ruth, incredibly beautiful reconciliation of a relationship. People get together. It turns out really, really well. Well, this one begins with the reconciliation of a relationship between a man and his young bride, but it quickly turns to tragedy. And by the time you get to where we're going next week in chapters 20 and 21, you find that there's a massacre that is so massive that it nearly wipes out one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. And every bit of it, every component of these stories drives home the final point of the final verse in the final chapter of the book of Judges. Look with me at this. It says again, Judges 21, 25, very last verse, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like a terrible time to live, doesn't it? People are making up rules as they go. Well, the gruesome events of chapter 19 that you're about to see expose the extent of the decay 
And if you've been with us in the story of Judges so far, you've seen that Israel as a nation has abandoned God. They've committed apostasy. They know what God has called them to do, but they decide to go the opposite direction, both individually and nationally. So apostasy is just part of who they are. And you're church people. You're here on a Sunday morning when you don't have to be here. And you know when people choose to live in a way that abandons God, there are consequences, both individually and nationally. So from our vantage point living in the 21st century, we look back on this period of time and it's so easy to find ourselves marveling and saying, how in the world can they not see what they're doing to their own nation? What in the world are they thinking? Well, remember these stories are designed to point forward to remind you and I, to remind us just how desperate the human condition is and how great is the need for a deliverer. Well, the circumstances that you're about to see drive this nation to get to the point where they begin pleading with God for a solution. And they begin pleading with God for a political solution because they think the trouble with their nation will be solved by getting the right person in office. They think that's the core solution, and they're not really aware that the rot is much deeper than that. The real problem is this. Although they claim to be the people of Yahweh, they claim to belong to God, their, con their conduct contradicts the claim that they make. So you're going to definitely come to this point in this story where you're going to say, why in the world does God want this written down, especially this content? There's a couple reasons I've come to the conclusion on. One I'll give you right up front, just very poignant. I think we would all agree on this. Life without God is absolute chaos. Amen? You're going to very definitely come to that conclusion as you work through this, but there's another reason. I'll show you that in a minute. So you and I have a task before us. Let's discover why God wrote this down. It starts this way in verse 1. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. And right out of the gate, there's this really ominous tone right at the very beginning. He's saying there's an absence of a leader. There's no king in Israel. But Israel actually doesn't need a king to lead them where they're headed. They can sink this low completely on their own. Because the nation has refused to follow the Lord, they lack a reason actually for not sinking deeper into the sewer. They rejected God's word completely, and therefore they have no foundation whatsoever on which to base the structure of their society. So what they've done by this point in history is they've replaced God by abasing themselves and gravitating to the lowest common denominator, and they begin acting like the Philistines and the Canaanites, nations who are among them whom they're living with and they're acting like them. What they really need are role models. What they need are individuals who will rise above culture, and that's why God gave them the judges to deliver them. But those judges didn't act so well as you've seen. Samson, a prime example, they failed in their responsibility. Well, what you've just read is the main character in the story is a Levite. And a Levite is from one of the 12 tribes. God gave the responsibility for the priestly responsibilities to one tribe the tribe of Levi, and from them would come the priest who would have the responsibility to intercede and act on behalf of the people and actually go to God on behalf of the people. And if you would, they would become the rescuers in the sense that they would intervene on behalf of those individuals. One of the most lovely images we have of Jesus is found in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 where it talks about Jesus being a priest. Look with me on the screen. Verse 17 says, He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 
Can I just say this morning, Jesus is a great priest. He comes to the aid of His people. He intercedes on our behalf. That's what a priest is supposed to do. Well, the, the Levites are the priestly order. They're the ones that produce the priest, the ones who would intercede on behalf of the people, and they would live righteously before God. But what we've just found is this Levite, this priest, if you will, is living with a concubine, which means he has no legal relationship to her. He has a physical relationship to her. A concubine in Scripture simply means someone that they take as a wife, but they're not actually legally married to. We would call it today a common-law wife in our world. In their world, they called it a second-class wife. Well, this Levite is from the hill country. He's from north of Jerusalem. And she's from the lower areas down south of Jerusalem. She's from a little town called Bethlehem. And evidently, she's very unhappy with the condition of her relationship. And rather than live with an angry husband, she returns to the safety of her father's house in Bethlehem. Pick it up in verse 2. But his concubine played the harlot, and it doesn't mean what you think it means. I'll tell you in just a moment. I'll show it to you. It's a very complex translation. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him to her father's house, and when the girl, girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him." I'll just come back to the thought of a concubine. She's not married to him as a wife would be legally. The primary difference between a concubine and a wife is less marked among the Hebrew people than what it is among us today. We would look at it and say, what in the world is a Levite doing with a concubine? Well, the difference would be is that this concubine doesn't have any legal standing. Therefore, if it comes to a divorce, quote unquote, she wouldn't have any way to be repudiated. A, a legal wife would have some way legally to argue her case before the courts, but a common-law wife would have no rights to a bill of divorce. So the way the Septuagint actually reads, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually reads that she's angry with him. What does a harlot do? When it says she played the harlot, a harlot is someone who goes outside of the relationship, leaves the relationship. She leaves the relationship, and the translations actually show that she despised him. If you take the Hebrew language at its face value, it seems that she leaves her husband because she's tired of being treated as a second-class wife. He's not making any commitment to her. He's like a live-in boyfriend. There's nothing going any further, and so she returns home. So the Levite waits, and he waits, and he waits for her to return. Four months go by, and she isn't returning. So he takes the initiative to head to Bethlehem. And he attempts to mend the relationship by speaking what the Scriptures call comforting words to her, or he speaks tenderly to her. One of the words in your notes this morning, you see it on the screen also, is lab, and this particular Hebrew word actually means to speak to her heart, her emotions, but also to speak to her intellect and to her will. What's he doing with her? He's, he's attempting, a serious attempt to persuade her to reconcile by speaking to all of who she is, and he knows exactly the words to use. And apparently he's very successful because she sees him and she's happy and they, break, they, they restore the broken relationship. She brings him into her father's house and the father-in-law exudes friendliness and hospitality. And the father-in-law is very happy to see him and the breakup of a relationship in this world would bring disgrace to the family. Now, I'm not sure if the father-in-law is happy to see him because he's really tired of having his empty nest, not an empty nest anymore, and he wants his status returned, or if it's just because of the reconciliation, but for whatever reason, he's overjoyed, and the father-in-law, as a result, insists that she stay and that he stay and that they celebrate for a few days with him. Verse 4, his father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go, and the girl's father said to his son-in-law, sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to him, the man, please be willing to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. Now the, the plot actually becomes pretty comical. 
because this overly gracious father-in-law keeps detaining them, but the Levite is desperate to leave, and he has no interest whatsoever in staying, but he's a son-in-law, and so he's got to honor the customs of hospitality in their world. So he stays willingly three days. By the fourth day, he's really ready to go, and he's, he attempts this early start, but it's thwarted by the father-in-law, but by the fifth day, he's had it. He's done. He's ready. I got to get out of here. I got to get back to my home. On verse 8, on the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. On the surface, it seems like everything is working out well. This is a happy ending. Relationships restored. Father-in-law is thrilled to see him, puts his blessing, feeds them a lot. But it's this delay on the fifth day that crosses the line and proves extraordinarily dangerous, and you have to prepare yourself for a shock. Verse 9, when the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here that your heart may be merry. And tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. But the man was not willing to spend the night. Just pause. The father-in-law is playing that same card again. He wants them to stay. Levite says, no, I've stayed too long already. They head out to go to Jerusalem. And it's late in the day already. It's late afternoon. The daylight is nearly gone. And they make their way towards a city called Jebus. And Jebus is the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem, and it's called Jebus because it's inhabited by the Jebusites, who are part of the Canaanite culture. Verse 10, but the man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys. His concubine also was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone. And the servant said to his master, Please come and let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. Verse 12, however, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. Now, what you're reading here is a a huge contrast. There's a transition taking place. To this point, it's all been about hospitality. It's been all about reconciliation. But finally, they depart. Now, the average human being can walk three to four miles an hour, typically if they're in decent shape. Three to four miles an hour, a couple hours of walking, they're going to make it seven to eight miles. Jerusalem is about six and a half to seven miles away from where they're at. They really need a place to stay for the night. So the servant logically says, why not this city? Why wouldn't we take the night here? Let's go into Jebus. Jebus is inhabited by the Canaanites, not by the Jews. So he's saying it's not safe. And the Levite refuses and says, no way. I am not staying with that culture. I'm not going to be in that city. I want an Israelite city. This is one of the ways that theologians date the timelines of the Bible, knowing who was occupying what city at what time. Well, at this period of time, the Canaanites still have control of Jerusalem, which tells you specifically that Israel has failed to do what God told them to do. They are really successful at Jericho. Many, many, many years have gone by, and they still have not inhabited Jerusalem because they have failed to do what God told them to do, and it's just like during the time of Samson, where people became very, very complacent, and they've settled into this lifestyle. Verse 13, he said to his servant, come and let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, meaning the tribe of Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter the, and lodge at Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that's not normal. 
That's not Middle Eastern culture. People openly, welcomely bring people in with hospitality. So it's ironic that he expects hospitality in Gibeah because it belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, which is only four miles outside of Jerusalem. He's thinking, yeah, it's going to be different among my people. I'm going to get to where the Jews are, and it'll be different there. So he expects to be taken in by someone, especially his fellow Jews. But what he fails to calculate is just how rotted the society has become, which is a reflection of a much bigger issue. If you reject God, it's easy to devalue humans. If you take the Creator out who breathed life into man and say, He doesn't even exist, He doesn't matter, then why would humans even matter? So if you reject God, you're going to devalue humans. That's what's going on in their culture. In another era, during another time, this town would normally be honored to have a Levite among them. One who comes from the priestly order, there's serious social dysfunction going on here, dysfunction going on. He's only asking for a bed for the night. But after knocking on the doors, they return to the city square. It's just inside the main gates, and it should be a safe place to stay, and that's going to have to do for the night. Now, in a culture where hotels are virtually non-existent, very, very few inns, it's stunning that this town would refuse hospitality. It'd be common courtesy. You're driving down the highway and you see somebody with a flat tire, your temptation is to stop and help that person that's got a flat tire. Our society is not so far gone that we don't have basic hospitality. So it's common courtesy as a human being to help somebody out when they're in a difficult situation. But they're not willing to help him out. And they live in a culture where there's no hotels. So the disintegration of their society is so intense that the basic principles of human behavior at the very heart of the culture are infected. And it's speaking to this much bigger issue. There's a reason why they closed the doors in the face of this guy. The deep cultural rot among society has caused them to begin behaving like the Canaanites. If you look at the theologians and commentators who have written about these passages, they would say, this story is the supreme example of the canonization of Israel, where they have turned the corner. Now the city square is like an open park. We have parks here in our society today, parks that are created for people to enjoy. An open park is what the city square is. It's a logical place to wait because in an age of road thugs, you do not want to be on the road in at dark, at nighttime, it's too dangerous. So verse 16, and behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. The old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? This is the Levite responding in verse 18. He said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there and I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house and no one will take me into his house. And this old man goes on high alert because he knows there is a serious problem. Mind you, this is a walled city at Gibeah. They have city gates. When the gates close at night and you come inside, you should be safe there when the gates close. But as a resident of the city, this old man knows there is a problem that is not outside the walls. There's a problem inside the walls. And if this were a movie, right now you'd hear the underscore of violins building in the background and then gently would come in some screeching trumpets, which would be building the intensity of the enormous danger that's building in the background. Because what the old man says to him next is extremely crucial. Do not spend the night in the city square. And he's not saying it's a bad part of town. He's saying it's a bad town. 
You can't do that. Go forward with me, verse 20. The old man said, peace to you, only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Now, it's crucial to understand that this old man does not share the values, the moral values of the people of this town. He warmly welcomes these individuals in. He's got his own issues you'll see in just a moment, but right now he's like Lot living in Sodom. He knows the ways of the people of Gibeah, and he knows all too well what they behave like. Now, since this Levite is traveling with his own donkeys, he's got his own food, he's got his own wine. He doesn't actually anticipate a meal, but this guy takes him in and he feeds him anyway. And they enter his home and he shuts the door behind them and he could take a sigh of relief. The crisis is over. They're in a safe place. So it seems, and that's when the sinister reality rears its ugly head. Verse 22, while they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows surrounded the house pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine, meaning the Levite's concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them." Even if you don't want to pause there, I'm going to pause there. Because you have to drink in the reality of what's going through your head right now. Like, what? What, what did I just read? Did I read that right? Here's my daughter, you can rape her? The people inside the house have relaxed prematurely. Now keep in mind, they have bypassed Jebus, Jerusalem, because they said, no, we're not going to go in that culture. It's not safe there. And their feasting inside is rudely interrupted by this loud pounding on the door outside. And we're told that these certain men, I'll use the term loosely, these men arrive and they're definitely not there to extend hospitality. And now, now the Levite understands why it was not safe to stay in the city square. Now he understands why all the city doors closed when he came to their door. Gibeah, a town of Benjamin, of the tribes of Israel, has absorbed the moral rot of the Canaanites. They're living among them, they act like them, and it is another Sodom. And to be clear, they have come pounding on the door for the explicit purpose of committing perverse sexual acts. And so the author of Judges says there's certain worthless fellows here. Now, the term that you see in your notes that you also see going on the screen is the word Belial. The sons of Belial, in other words, the sons of Satan. Belial was used in the New Testament as a synonym for Satan. Wicked, depraved individuals who are evil at the core. Belial in the New Testament actually is translated the angel of wickedness. Now, understand what's going on here. Among the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Hittites, at this time there is zero restriction on heterosexual and homosexual behavior. It is a free-for-all. People in those societies can do whatever they want and they applaud each other when they do. But along comes this new nation called Israel whom God gives His commands to in the wilderness regarding sexual behavior. And He says specifically, here's how I want you to behave. Now, we don't understand it today looking back on it, but what God told them to do was absolutely revolutionary, 180 degrees the opposite of the societies that they came from. 
where it was a sexual free-for-all. So they're coming out of the culture of Egypt, and they're going into the culture where the Canaanites and the Philistines live, where sexual freedom is completely unrestrained whatsoever. And we see the reminder that consistently since the time of Noah, human sexuality continues to devolve, and at this period of time, no one cared whatsoever until God comes along and says, here's what I expect. Here's what my standards are. Here's my guidelines for society. Here's how you're supposed to behave in a godly manner. Now fast forward to Gibeah. They're not just insisting on free sexual behavior. They're not just insisting on free homosexual behavior, all of which is clearly condemned in the book of Leviticus by God. But what they're demanding is gang rape. Now this old man inside the house, he carries this huge responsibility. He's brought them under his roof, and he's desperate to protect this Levite. And so in return, he offers his own daughter and the Levite's concubine in exchange. You may be new to the Bible, you need to understand what's going on with women at this stage. In those days, a woman's position in an ungodly culture is extremely low. They're treated like a piece of furniture. You find it reflected in this old man's statement here because in his mind, the most disgraceful thing they could do would be to molest the Levite. So he wants to protect the man at all costs because he has to protect the guest who is his honored guest. So in his mind, which is a really corrupt view, he's thinking, it'd be better if you would rape my daughter than rape this Levite. I'm going to give you them. If Genesis 19 and Judges 19 sound like they're a match to you, the description in Genesis 19 being Sodom and Judges 19 being Gibeah, you find that there's a violation going on here that is consistent. And it looks like the author of Judges looked a lot at the book of Genesis when he's writing this because he keeps using the term yada. And when they say, we want you to bring them out so that we might know them, that we might have relations, he's using the term yada, and it always means, yada means sexual relations. We want him so that we can rape him. So the th three violations going on here is that God was very clear on His laws of heterosexual relationship outside of marriage. He's very clear on His laws of heterosexual relationship within marriage, and He's very clear on His laws of hospitality. And so this old man has to say to them in Judges 19 verse 23, look on the screen at this, do not act so wickedly. That word in your notes this morning is ra'ah, and ra'ah is evil. Do not act so evil that you're going to destroy everything. In other words, the word ra'ah means to break something into pieces so it's worthless, so that it's no good. Don't behave this way. But he doesn't stop there. The next thing he says in the same verse, do not commit this act of folly. And the word there is nabala, meaning without spiritual restraint. The actual definition means intellectual stupidity. Wait, how can you be intellectual and then be stupid at the same time? Well, what he's saying is you know better. You know the right way, but you're acting foolishly. Don't do this intellectually stupid thing. So he's got these two dimensions going on. This, this ra'ah is evil because it violates God's standards, and this nebula, it violates all the sexual norms of deviant sexual behavior. That's what he's calling them out on. Now, rebuking the men of the city is one thing, but then he proposes this outrageous alternative because everyone's doing what seems right in their own eyes, he offers up his own daughter because it seems right in his eyes to protect this guy. So in this heartless action, this travesty, the young women inside, both the concubine and his own daughter, they can be substitutes. I'll bring them out and do to them what is ever good in your eyes. He uses the term again himself. Look with me at verse 22. Pick it up there. Four. I'm sorry, verse 24. 
Here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish, meaning whatever's good in your eyes, go ahead and do it. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. Unfortunately, it's only just begun. And if you want to step out at this point, I certainly understand because it's about to get a whole lot worse. And you're thinking, well, this, this sounds a lot like Sodom. Yes, except there will be no angels to rescue these young women. Now check this. There are five people in that house. They're not interested in the host. They're not interested in the servant. They're not interested in the two young ladies. They want the Levite, the one who is supposed to be the spiritual leader of their nation. They want that one. He is their target. They have zero regard for the priestly order. So you have to brace yourself for what comes next. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him, so the man, the priest, the Levite, seized his concubine and brought her out to them, and they raped her and abused her all night long, all night until morning, then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. Very intentionally, the author of Judges doesn't even call her his, call him her husband anymore, doesn't call him the Levite, calls him the master. There's name plays that are going on within this story. There's word exchanges intentionally. The Hebrew language gets very, very graphic, and I can't go there with you on it. But here's where I can go there with you on it in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language is very clear that he shoves her out the door and slams it shut behind her. And by the time she is pushed out, the men who are surrounding this house are filled with uncontrollable lust. And what was good in their eyes turns out to be absolutely monstrous. And it's like tossing a piece of scrap meat to wild animals. And the ravenous dogs outside devour this girl. It's not often that I call someone a moron, but earlier, this moron went all the way to Bethlehem to speak sweetly to this girl, to talk her back into a relationship with him, to rescue her with words, if you will, so logically, you would look at this and say, well, certainly he's going to rescue her. Certainly he's going to step in. No. He's too interested in saving his own skin. And you can easily see why she left him in the first place. What a creep. She is sacrificed to save his skin. And they've abused her all night long, and that's where the Hebrew language gets really graphic, and I'm not going into it with you. It's just disgusting. So it's appalling enough that we understand that they rape her all night long, and then this vile mob discards her, and she staggers her way back to the door where she collapses and lays there until daybreak. And by sunrise, the severity of her trauma takes her life. So when the Levite opens the door in the morning, we find this in verse 27. When her master arose in the morning and opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was laying, lying at the doorway of the house. I had a hard time in the nine o'clock reading those six words. I've got to tell you, it's just as hard right now. With her hands on the threshold, he said to her, get up. He said to her, get up and let us go. 
But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey, and the man arose and went to his home. So instead of looking for her, not even checking on her, he goes out the door to go on his way, and he trips over her body. Hands on the threshold. And I can't get this image out of my head. Because you can see her. Those frail hands reaching towards the very door she was just shoved out of. And she's reaching for protection. She's reaching for security. She's reaching for the guy who said he would be there for her. And she's too weak to open the door. She can't even knock. All she can do is grasp death. And as if nothing unusual has happened, he walks out the door and says, get up. We're going. Uh, is he so unaware of what happened during the night? And the writer of this passage is so skillful when he tells us there was just deafening silence. How could there be a response? When we contrast this new hope against why God called Israel out in the first place, that they would be a light to the nations, that they would learn to do life with God, that they would learn to do things according to what's good in God's eyes. You see the despicable depravity has eclipsed the standards of God when they're doing what seems good in their own eyes. And this night of horror has a profound impact on the nation. Hosea chapter 9, chapter 10, he actually calls this day in Israel the, the depth of corruption. No lower day has ever existed for them. And he should call it that. It, it's disgusting to any person who's a thinking individual. But unfortunately, it's not done yet. Here we come into the last section. And, and this callousness to me, to hear me on this, is incomprehensible. I'm sure it is to you. He should have stepped out the door long before daybreak. But now he's on his way home, and he has a long time to think about what he should have done. So he comes to a conclusion, apparently, about what he should do now, and he arrives home and performs an act of revolting gruesomeness. Verse 29, is there any tissue sitting around? We're all friends. Just wait for me, will you? Or you're going to hear me sniffle for a long time. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. That's a good friend that'll loan you their napkin. I'll give it back to you, too. <laughs> Verse 29, when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in twelve pieces limb by limb and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. Outside of the crucifixion of Jesus, this is among the most grotesque descriptions in all of Scripture, and you definitely hear in it the echoes of Sodom, a young woman who's been sacrificed to the lust of men. And now he butchers her as one would divide an animal carcass and then sends her body out to each of the 12 tribes, even to the tribe of Benjamin. And you are left in the 21st century saying, what do I do with this? 
There's a period at the end of that sentence. I mean, that's the end of the story. What am I supposed to do with this? How do I understand what's going on here? Well, understand what he's doing is found next week that you're going to see in chapter 20 and 21. It's a call to arms. He sends out packages to all the 12 leaders. And in return, all the 12 leaders of Israel, they demand an explanation for what's going on after they receive her body fragments. And that's what we're going to touch on next week. By sending her body throughout the nation, he's providing this shocking concrete evidence of the degeneracy of their society. And he's saying, look at what has become of us. Look at what our society has come to. Rather than being a holy people who are identified with God, they're 180 degrees the opposite because they have conformed to the culture that's around them. And so he's using her death to trigger an action. Now, mind you, we're all aware because we've been working through E2E for a while. Israel has been guilty of huge sins since the Exodus, but nothing so repulsive as this. And so now they have to plan a course of action. The cancer that's within them is actually the Canaanite culture. It's their standards. And that's why God wanted them removed. They are truly the children of Satan. But, and this is a big but because this really speaks to the church today. But when Israel self-righteously looks in the mirror and they see a nation that is ethnically distinct from the Canaanites and think, we wouldn't be like them. It's why the Levite didn't want to stay in Jerusalem in the first place. I'm not going in among those Jebusites. I want to go to my own people. I'm going to go to Gibeah, where the good Jews live. They are not culturally distinct. The truth is they've become indistinguishable with regard to their moral values and their social values. And so you should have Moses' words ringing in your ears right now if you think back in our E2E study to Deuteronomy chapter 8. What did Moses say when they got to this point in time was going to happen to them? Look with me on the screen. Verse 19, it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. So I asked you at the start of this today, why in the world would God want this written down? And I told you the very first component of this was really poignant, and you all agreed by saying amen to it. Life without God is absolute chaos. You can see that all over this. It's a picture of a very sinister world. But it is a mistake to think that this is only about unrestrained human depravity. See, the second reason I find this one comes screaming off the pages to me is I find the contrast. When God says all Scripture is inspired by God, it's given for teaching, for correction, for instruction, that means He's got a reason for wanting this written down. So I take this framework of knowledge that during this era, this world without God is full of depraved men, and women and children during this period of time have little to no protection. The rules of hospitality really only applied to the men in the house. That's why it was acceptable to send a female out as a sacrifice. Well, one of the stunning things about Jesus is that when He arrived on the scene that the people of the first century could get that, not get their mind wrapped around is that Jesus elevated women and children in such a way that people had never seen and never heard of. He brought women to the place where they were equal with men. That's what Jesus does, which was far outside the standards of normal ancient cultures. But we're looking back at this and we're seeing this is really showing the darkest side of humanity in this ancient world. Yet, for the sake of our own personal desires in our world, don't we also have our own little dirty laundry list? 
don't we also participate in pretty horrendous acts? In the 21st century, we commit things that are just as depraved and just as horrific. And here's the problem. We hear echoing in our mind this morning that everyone did according to what they saw fit in their own eyes, that very last verse of the story. Well, in a world in which individuals make themselves the measure of all things, eventually, the individual eventually counts for nothing, and life becomes really cheap. And eventually, you find your society even going so far as to murdering babies in the womb. How far gone is a society when individuals get to make up the rules, and then eventually individuals count for nothing? But here's the bright spot. For all our faults and for all our failures, God still gives us a priest who will rescue us. So that's why I shared with you Hebrews chapter 2. Let's close it out by looking at that again. Look at the description of Jesus. Verse 17, He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You know what that tells me, church? That's a priest who will never shove you out the door to the mob to save his own skin. That's a priest who allows himself to be turned over to the mob to save our skin. What a God is that? What a priest. Jesus is a great priest, and he will never leave you, and he will never abandon you. Rather, he rescues you. Praise God for that, priest church. Lord God, we thank you for the reality of what we've looked at today. And we ask you explicitly, Father, that you would cause us to not quickly dismiss this from our mind. It's so tempting to want to look at the sitcoms and laugh or make jokes or let things pass on by that we should pay attention to. And now we see why you caused this to be written down so that we would learn from it, that we would thank you, first of all, for our great priest who is rescuing us even as we speak. Thank you for Jesus, but also that you would use us to check our own lives first and foremost before we speak into the lives of our friends. Allow us to see where we've compromised, where we culturally non-distinct. Cause us to be looking like a people who are called out by your name, that we would be distinct so that we can speak with love and honesty into the lives of people who are desperately looking for rescue. I pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.